Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Buffalo Shots Podcast. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by MorbidlyBeautiful.com, that wonderful little website where you can get all sorts of horror information, stemming from movie reviews to top ten lists to anything you want, you'll find it on there. Not all of it's niche, not all of it's mainstream, it's a little bit of everything. So anybody who loves horror can go check that out right now. I very much encourage it. Before we do get started today, of course, I do have some housekeeping to get out of the way. Just get used to it, it's going to happen at the start of every cast. And that housekeeping is, if you want to contact me, you can. I'm very welcome to it. I very much enjoy hearing what you have to say. So with that said, you can contact me at my website at horrorshots.com. You can hit me up through email at horrorshotspodcast at gmail.com, Instagram at horrorshotsphotography, Twitter at horrorshotspod, Facebook at horrorshots, Patreon at patreon.com slash horrorshots, and if you're on YouTube, feel free to subscribe. I've had a few subscriptions in the last couple of days and a few more views and listens, I guess, whatever you want to call it on YouTube than usual. More people have been coming up to that, so if that's your thing, Feel free to drop a comment, like, subscribe, all those things that YouTubers say. And lastly, if you want to leave a review, please do. Reviews help little guys like me get noticed in the big, bad world of podcasting. The more reviews I have, the more likely these episodes are to show up on searches. It's that simple. And really, if you have a review, it's a five-star and you get a lot of them, more likely that people will actually listen upon finding the episodes as well. Just little things like that. If you want to spend the time, feel free to do so. Now today, we are going to talk about something pretty interesting. And that pretty interesting thing is deals with the devil. Dun, dun, dun. Now what inspired me to look into the deals with the devil? Well, I hadn't really gone through Michelle Bellinger's book, The Dictionary of Demons, in a long time. So I just happened to literally open the book to a specific page that was entitled Sealed in Blood. Of course I'm going to read further into what that means. And you'd have to be crazy not to read more into that. Seeing a title called Sealed in Blood in a not-so-fiction book? Yeah, you gotta read that. So that blurb, that excerpt, goes as such. Central to the Christian idea of witchcraft in the Middle Ages was the notion of a devil's pact, known as the Pacta Demonis. This was essentially a contract between the witch and the devil, and was believed to grant them special powers in exchange for certain services. Often pacts were believed to be signed in the witch's own blood, and it was not uncommon for the devil to demand payment in the form of one's immortal soul. Witches, for their part, were believed to gain the powers of the craft of the pact. 
It was through a pact with the devil that witches learned how to raise storms, bring hail to destroy the crops of their neighbors, and to curse milk to spoil. Notably, the tradition of magic outlined in the grimoires mentioned nothing of a pact. Certainly those looking from the outside at the practices of the grimoric traditions perceived a nefarious art that required one to consort with devils. And yet the practitioners of grimoric magic themselves felt they were engaged in a holy art. One has to only look at the invocations of the sacred magics of Aberlemayan the mage, or the sworn book of Honoris, to see this. Certainly there were darker practices to be found among the spells encoded in some of the grimoires, but these still stood in the stark contrast against the typical accusations levied against witches, pacts with the devils, orgies in the woods, child sacrifice, and so forth. Most of the magic in the European grimoires, even those spells that involve the invocation of spirits expressly identified as demons, call for ritual purity on the part of the magician. They are usually preceded by fasting, prayers, and often of a full confession. In the sacred magics of Abermelay and the Mage, the demons are summoned and made to swear their loyalty to the magician, not the other way around. The idea of Pacta Demonis was really a creation of the European witch craze, and was perpetuated through folklore and morality tales like those surrounding the legendary character of Dr. Faust, the scholar who sold his soul to the devil, something I'll be getting to in a minute. A devil's pact was the only way for many common folk to believe that their neighbors could ever achieve some kind of fearsome power attributed to the witches. Scholars in the church also had a hard time accepting that witches could be allowed to enact spells that went so clearly against God and nature, unless some manner of special contract were involved. Although the grimoire tradition and the European witch craze pretty much developed side by side, the notion of pacts would not become part of grimoire tradition until the early 1800s. At this time, several spurious grimoires were written with the express purpose of capitalizing on the fearsome reputation forbidden books of magic. The grimoire known as Le Dragon Rouge, written in 1822, is one of the first to contain explicit instructions for making a pact with the devil. Now I mentioned a name in there, Dr. Faust. Now, who is he? That's a very interesting name. It comes up in pop culture a lot. Even a comic book villain, I think it was one of Batman's villains, is named after Dr. Faust. And he has the same backstory. And thankfully, Michelle Bellinger has included a little bit more on Dr. Faust in her book here. Dr. Faust made a deal with the devil. This decadent scholar-turned-wizard is the focus of several famous literary works, including Goethe's Faust, completed in the early 1800s, and Christopher Marlowe's Elizabethan play, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus. Both Goethe and Marlowe drew their inspiration for the life and times of this curious figure from a publication entitled Historia von Dr. Johann Faustin. This chapbook was published by Johann Spies in Frankfurt in 1587. It was a collection of stories featuring Dr. Faust, and it became the first Faustbuch, a book exclusively devoted to Faust's infernal experiments. Faust books became extremely popular reading in the latter years of the 16th century. 
Many of the books were presented as Christian morality tales, recounting the escapades of Faust while introducing religious commentary and admonitions. All of the Faust books dealt with the demonic magic and the summoning of spirits, at least in the context of the nefarious deeds perpetrated by Dr. Faust. At least one of these books, entitled Major Natural et Naturalis, actually addresses the art of magic itself. In The Fortunes of Faust, scholar Elizabeth M. Butler makes an impressive case for how the Faust legend was inspired by the real-life practitioners of magic and magical arts, and, through its extensive portrayal in popular culture, in turn influenced the practice of ceremonial magic. Most people assume that Faust was a figure of legend, a character created to express some of the fears held by largely Christian societies trying to cope with delusional fears of a witchcraft conspiracy on one side and the very real magic of Renaissance occultists such as Henry Cornelius Agrippa. But according to Agrippa's own student, Johann Wierus, the legend of Dr. Faust was based on a real man. In his work, De Prestigious Demonum, Wierus identifies Johann Faust as an individual born in the little town of Kundling in the late 15th century or parts of the early 16th century. He allegedly studied magic in Krakow, where Wierus notes, quote, In olden days it was taught openly. From the descriptions given by Wierus, Faust's magic was part chemistry and part chicanery, and he was not above using it to swindle people. After his death, an unknown biographer sought to explain Faust's abilities by alleging that Faust had made a deal with the devil, and the rest, they say, is history. So now that we have a little bit more of understanding of exactly what the pact with the devil is, or who is involved, in this case Faust, let's look into a little bit more detail about the pacts and deals themselves. Now the pact can be either oral or written. An oral pact may be made by means of invocations, conjurations, or rituals to attract the demon. Once the conjurer thinks the demon is present, he or she asks for the wanted favor and offers his or her soul in exchange, and no evidence is left of the pact. But according to some witch trials, even the oral pact left evidence in the witch's mark, which is an indelible mark where the person had been touched by the devil to seal the pact. The mark could be used as proof to determine that the pact was made. It was also believed that on the spot where the mark was left, the marked person could feel no pain. A written pact consists of the same forms of attracting the demon, but includes a written act, usually signed with the conjurer's blood. These acts were presented often as proof of diabolical pacts, Though critics claim there is no proof of whether they were authentic, written by an insane person, believing they were actually dealing with the devil, or they were just fake acts presented at the tribunals. Usually the acts included strange characters that were said to be the signature of a demon, and each one had his own signature or seal. Books like the Lesser Key of Solomon give a detailed list of these signs, known as the Diabolical Signatures. The Malus Maleficarum discusses several alleged incidences of pacts with the devil, especially concerning women. It was considered that all witches and warlocks had made a pact with some demon, especially with Satan. 
According to demonology, there is a specific month, day of the week, and hour to call each demon. The invocation for a pact has to be done at the right time. Also, as each demon has a specific function, a certain demon is invoked depending on what the conjurer is going to ask. In the narrative of the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus is offered a series of bargains by the devil, in which he is promised worldly riches and glory in exchange for serving the devil rather than God. After Jesus rejects the devil's offer, he embarks on his travels as the Messiah. Now, throughout history, there have been many people accused of having pacts with the devil or a demon or demons. No more than the late Urbain Grandier. Now, Urbain Grandier was a French Catholic priest who was burned at the stake after being convicted of witchcraft following the events of the so-called Lundon possessions. The circumstances of Father Grandier's trial and execution have attracted the attention of writers Alexandre Dumas, Adus Huxley, and playwright John Whitting. Composers like Christophe Penderecki and Peter Maxwell Davies, as well as historian Jules Michelet and various scholars of European witchcraft, most modern commentators have concluded that Grandier was the victim of a politically motivated persecution led by the powerful Cardinal Rousseau. A little bit about Grandier's life. Grandier attended the Jesuit College of La Maladine in Bordeaux. His uncle was a priest who had some influence with the Jesuits there. They held the right to appoint the parish priest for the Church of Saint-Pierre-du-Marche in Loudon, and in 1617 chose Grandier. They also had the right to name a canon to the collegiate church of Sainte-Croix, also in Loudon, and Grandier was appointed to that as well. Thus, as the eldest son, he was able to support his widowed mother and siblings. That he should receive both valuable positions in preference to a local candidate caused some resentment. Sometime around 1629 or 1630, Philippe Trincant, daughter of Louis Trincant, the king's prosecutor and a friend of Grandier, gave birth to his son. It was widely speculated that Grandier was the father. He was also believed to have had intimate relations with a number of other women. It wasn't until 1632 that a group of nuns from the local Ursuline convent accused him of having bewitched them, sending the demon Asmodai, among others, to commit evil and impudent acts with them. Aldous Huxley, in his non-fiction novel, The Devils of Loudon, argued that the accusations began after Grandier refused to become the spiritual director of the Covenant, where that mother superior, Sister Jeanne of the Angels, had become obsessed with him, having seen him from afar and having heard of his sexual exploits. According to Huxley, Sister Jeanne, enraged by his rejection, instead invited Canon Jean Mignon, an enemy of Grandier, to become the director. Jeanne then accused Grandier of using black magic to seduce her. The other nuns gradually began to make similar accusations. However, Monsieur de Nau, counselor at La Fleche, said that Grandier applied for the position, but that it was instead awarded to Canon Jean Mignon, a nephew of Monsieur Trincant. The Archbishop of Bordeaux intervened and ordered the nuns sequestered, upon which the instances of possession seemed to have stopped. Seemed to have st 
Granger had gained the enmity of the powerful Cardinal Richelieu, the chief minister of France. In its continuing efforts to consolidate and centralize power, the crown had ordered the walls around Loudon to be demolished. The populace were of two minds concerning this, whether to keep the wall or rely on the central government for protection. Granger supported those who wished to retain the wall. In addition, not only had Grandier written a book attacking the discipline of the clerical celibacy, he had also penned a scathing satire on the cardinal himself. Around the time of the nun's accusations, Jean de Loubardemont, a supposed relative of Mother Superior of the Covenant of Loudon, was sent to demolish the town tower. He was prevented from doing so by the town militia, and upon returning to Paris reported on the state of affairs in Loudon, including the recent disturbance at the Ursuline convent. In November 1633, de l'Abadement was commissioned to investigate the matter. Granger was arrested and confined to the prison at Angers. L'Abadement returned to Paris, where letters were intercepted in support of Granger from the Bailey of Loudon to the Procurator General of the Parliament, stating that the possession was an imposture. Monsieur de L'Abadement returned to Loudon with a decree of the council dated 31st of May, 1634, confirming all of his powers and prohibiting Parliament and all other judges from interfering in the matter and forbidding all parties concerned from appealing under penalty of fine of 500 livres. Grenier, who had been held at the prison of Angers, was returned to Loudon. Both the examination of the witnesses and exorcisms of the Ursuline continued. After Grenier had been supposedly tortured, documents were introduced purportedly signed by him and several other demons as evidence that he had made a diabolical pact. It is not clear whether Grenier wrote or signed the pacts under duress or whether they were forged. Grenier was found guilty and sentenced to death. The judges who condemned Grandier ordered that he be put to the extraordinary question, a form of torture which was usually but not immediately fatal, and was therefore administered only to those victims who were to be executed immediately afterwards. In addition, Grandier was subjected to a form of the Spanish boot, an iron vice filled with spikes that was brought to a red-hot heat and then applied to Grandier's calf and ankle to shatter the bones. Despite the torture, Granger never confessed to witchcraft. Nevertheless, he was burned alive at the stake. Now, what did the diabolical pact in question, the whole thing that got Granger killed, what was that all about? One of the documents introduced as evidence during Granger's second trial as a diabolical pact written in Latin and is apparently signed by Granger. Another, which looks illegible, is written backwards in Latin with Skirbel abbreviation, and has since been published and translated in a number of books on witchcraft. The document also carries many strange symbols and was quote-unquote signed by several demons with their seals, as well as Satan himself, or supposedly Satan himself. Deciphered and translated into English, it reads, We the influential Lucifer, the young Satan, Beelzebub, Leviathan, Alimi and Astaroth, together with others, have today accepted the covenant pact of Urbane Granger, who is ours, and him do we promise the love of women, 
the flower of virgins, the respect of monarchs, honors, lusts, and powers. He will go whoring three days long. The carousel will be dear to him. He offers us once, in the year of a seal of blood, under the feet he will trample the holy things of the church, and he will ask us many questions. This pact he will live twenty years happy on the earth of men, and will later join us to sin against God. Bound in hell, the council of demons, Lucifer, Beelzebub, Satan, Astroth, Leviathan, Elimi, the seals placed, the devil, the master, and the demons, prince of the lord, Balbereth, writer. It's some pretty chilling stuff, especially taking to the time that this was committed. We're talking deeply religious time frames here. Back in the 1600s, this was akin to the most devious, the worst thing that you could possibly do was consort with the devils or perpetrate witchcraft. Now, these things don't just go back hundreds and hundreds of years. They go back as early or as recent as Robert Johnson in the 1900s. Yes, you may have heard of Robert Johnson before. He was a blues singer and songwriter, and he was born on May 8th, 1911, and thusly died August 16th, 1938. His landmark recordings in 1936 and 1937 displayed a combination of singing, guitar skills, and songwriting talent that has influenced later generations of musicians. Johnson's poorly documented life and death have given rise to much legend. The one most closely associated with his life is that he sold his soul to the devil at a local crossroads to achieve his musical success. He's now recognized as a master of the blues, particularly as a progenitor of the Delta Blues style. Now, while I'm sure there is a lot about this legend out there, I just don't have the time to cover everything. So here's a quick synopsis of what is believed to be the Robert Johnson deal with the devil at the crossroads. According to legend, a young man living on a plantation in rural Mississippi Johnson had a tremendous desire to become a great blues musician. He was instructed by an unknown party to take his guitar to a crossroad near Dockery Plantation at midnight. There he was met by a large black man, believed to be the devil, who took the guitar and tuned it. The devil played a few songs, then returned the guitar to Johnson, giving him mastery of the instrument. This was a deal with the devil mirroring the legend of Faust. In exchange for his soul, Johnson was able to create the blues for which he became famous. Now, this is probably the most common or most popular form of deals with the devil, as it has been portrayed in countless popular culture themes. I know Supernatural, the TV show has been on for 150 years now, probably did deal with the devil themselves to be on this long, to be completely honest, but they portray that almost every episode. From what I can remember, they always had a deal with the devil going on at some point in time, at some crossroads, at some rural town in America, even though I think it was shot in BC. Regardless, the deal with the devil is something that has been going on for a very long time, and of course, various peoples have been associated with it from 
witches, to even clergymen. No one is immune to the temptations of the devil, and that I think is the moral of these stories. That if you don't want to put in the effort, if you don't want to work hard and work smart for your goals, there's always an easy way out. But the price is always very, very high. Case in point, your soul being sent to hell and enslaved by demons. Now that doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. It could be. I'm not saying it's not. I mean, really, it could be quite fun. Hell could be a great place. It could be full of parties and stuff. But something tells me if it exists and the descriptions and depictions of it in all these literatures and various texts throughout time, probably not the greatest place to spend eternity. Nevertheless, that has been the look into Deals with the Devil. So until next week.